A mass turning away from the faith in the last days is what is referred to as the great apostasy. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus gives a call to endure in prayerfulness, and then in verse 8, he refers to this time of apostasy in the last days, asking, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? The turning away of faith will mean a turning away from faithful prayer. Let us not concede to such an end in our churches today. Welcome everyone, I'm Joel Van Hoogen and this is the Bread of Life. This radio ministry is sponsored by Church Partnership Evangelism and its local missions fellowship in Boise, Idaho, the Bread of Life. If you're looking for a place to give that is taking the gospel in direct and personal evangelism throughout the world, then would you consider Church Partnership Evangelism? You can learn more about how God is using us and how to donate to our ministry by going to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. Our lesson today is taken from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-10, through 10, and particular verse 8, where Paul says, It is my desire that in every place the men should pray. Here is the desire and commission of God. As the Spirit comes to our churches, He looks for this one thing above all else. Are our churches houses of prayer? Let's begin by asking a question. The question would be this. Why are we trying to avoid the inevitable? Why are we trying to avoid the inevitable? In other words, God has prophesied an end of this age to go a certain way. And as we study the age in which we live, we may begin to suspect that we are seeing what God has prophesied taking place before our eyes. Uh, One world order, the proliferation of evil, the demise of nations, and economic unifying of all the world powers, people who will give up their individual rights for security and comfort, a general malaise or failure of discernment as people are ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth, a centralized federated religion will rise up, an increase in lawlessness, the Bible says, will take place in those days. And Today, again, we might see that these, our day is quickly advancing into the inevitable outcomes that God himself has decreed and proclaimed. The question is, if if this is the case, and this is what's happening, why are we trying to stop it? Why are we talking about how terrible it is and what we can do to avoid it and what responses we can make to somehow turn back the clock? Why should we not instead just relinquish ourselves to these inevitabilities? Why shouldn't our focus instead be to prepare ourselves to weather the storms that we see forming before us. But I think there's an answer as to why we don't just concede to what has been prophesied and what's coming upon us. And I think the answer, to some extent, is going to be made clear through observations we want to make from verse 8 here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. There, the church of Jesus Christ is being called upon to pray. The Holy Spirit is issuing through the words of Paul his own decree for the church. Paul is the one speaking here, but it's the Holy Spirit that's inspiring it. And it's an expression of the deep, resonating desire, not only in Paul's heart, but in God's heart, that God's people might be praying. That God might find his church and the Christian praying in every place. So let's make this our first observation here. That God desires that in every place... Men of faith should pray. And we see in verses 9 and 10, and within the context, that the women too 
are being called to this work of prayer. This is a, a declaration. This is a decree. This is a call that God is giving us. It's a decree that goes out to all believing people. Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is leading the church at Ephesus. Paul is giving him direction on how to lead that church. And the message that's to be delivered to the church is that Jesus Christ is calling upon and God desires for the church to be a praying church. That God wishes to find the members of the church at prayer. In fact, this actually seems to be the central expression of the fellowship of God's people. When God comes to enter into and to view our churches or the church, the, the one thing God is looking for, the one note that is supposed to be rising from that place is that there are people of prayer. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we, we see the emergence of the church following the day of Pentecost. And in that verse, we have described for us, in a sense, the four foundations or cornerstones of the life of the church. It says there that they met regularly for the apostles' doctrine, for fellowship, for the breaking of bread, and for prayer, they gathered together, a cornerstone of the foundation of the church. They gathered together to pray together. In Luke chapter 18, the Lord Jesus gives a parable, and Luke introduces the parable by telling us what the point of the parable was before we even read it. Verse 1 of Luke chapter 18 is this. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not to lose heart. The parable then goes on to express God's desire that we would persist in prayer and that we might pursue to seek an answer in prayer in order that we might seek from God those answers that he would give to us. But the fact that the Lord Jesus tells the prayer and that men should not lose heart indicates to us that there is an understanding in Christ's mind that because we do not get an immediate answer to the things we pray for, because uh, the tide around us seems to be flowing the opposite direction of the very things we're praying for, that we could quit, that we could stop, that we could become discouraged and we could leave off from our prayer and our commitment to pray. And the Lord Jesus says, no, I don't want that. I want that we should persist in prayer. At the end of that parable, the Lord Jesus breathes out a sigh, almost a, a reference uh, reviewing what he's just commanded. He says this, nevertheless, it's in verse 8, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And the context again here is this instruction to be praying. Here in this passage, the Lord Jesus is found wondering whether the apostasy at the end of the age will somehow impact the life of faith in such a way that there will be a sweeping away of prayerfulness, that there will instead be a prayerlessness, a losing of heart in the life of prayer. And this will be a, 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 an answer to what's been prophesied also in the last days of an apostasy. That is a, a turning away of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ from that faith. And the marker of it will be in the place where prayer ought to be taking place, no prayer will be taking place. Faithfulness will somehow dissipate. And so, well, just an answer to this question, why don't we just concede with what's happening? And what we see prophetically being proclaimed is, do you want to concede to apostasy? Do you want to concede to prayerlessness that Christ concerns himself about even in the parable that he tells in Luke chapter 18? And the answer, I hope, is no. No, we want to be fulfilling, should Christ return, the command at this time, the command that he's given that in every place, men ought to be found praying. Here's the second thing we see here. In this text, we understand something. We understand that the prayer God is calling us to is a prayer for the pursuing of the salvation of lost souls. We understand that the prayer that God is calling us to is a prayer 
of pursuing and seeking the salvation of lost souls. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, we see that the central consideration that directs this, this strategically refocused request that we make of God is that God desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. That we pray in our prayers in accord with the heart of God himself. In fact, our prayers are to reflect what God desires himself, which is the salvation of men. And so our prayer rises out not of our desires and our passions first, but our prayers rise up out of God's desire and God's passions that all men might be saved. And then verse 5 declares the central truth that all men must know in order to come into that salvation. It lays the foundation, you might say, for all that we ask for. It's our prayer is based upon, it's a prayer into the future, a prayer that God might work those things to bring about the salvation of men, formed upon what God has already done, and God has already provided for the salvation of men. And a certain knowledge that individuals cannot be saved of their own good works, or by their own deeds, or by their own efforts, and they can find no salvation in no other place than the place where God has provided salvation. And so, Paul writes, there's one mediator between people and God, between man and God. There's only one individual who has bridged the gap of separation that sin has caused because this one man has given himself as a ransom to pay the price for our sins. That one mediator is Jesus Christ. And because we know that God has provided the foundation and it becomes, in a sense, the truth point from which we make our prayers, and then we see God's passion, which becomes the energizing point through which our prayers arise and we agree with, We are to be praying for the salvation of men and salvation of souls. And then verses 1 and 2 basically express that the fact is, is as we pray, our strategic prayer is not simply praying for people to pray some prayer of faith to receive Jesus Christ or people to make some decision or change their minds to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, but we're even to pray for the right conditions for this message to be delivered to them, for this truth to take root in their lives, for there be the right conditions for us to communicate these things to others. We are to pray strategically all along the pathway from men who are lost in rebellion against God and darkness and sin. We're to pray all along the pathway to bring through our prayers the work of God and the hand of God upon their lives to bring them into the light where they come to salvation. And so here we're we're to be found praying that the conditions will be made possible to make these truths most pointedly known to them. We're to pray for those things that make for peace for our world, for a quiet life which will then in turn help us to put our energy into the real work that God has given us to do. We can become distressed and distracted from our purpose and God's central calling upon the church when there's a lot of turmoil around us. We can misspend our energies because we become fixated on, we become overcome by environments that and social settings that disrupt us. And, and when there's civil unrest, it creates divisions among those that we live with that negatively impact our ability to proclaim the gospel to them. And so we're to pray for peace. We're to pray that our very lives become, in a sense, uh, atmospheric presentations of the peace and calm and quietness of God. So as people look at our lives and they see the peace that's pervading us and the love that is emanating from our life and the care and concern for them and that we're not somehow jumping into the tensions and the divisions of society, they, they might ask us for the reason for the hope that lies within us. And Paul talks about that too in this chapter. And we're able to give them an answer. 
But then again, it would be preferable that we not have those divisions and problems in that age. And so we're to pray for this right environment, this situation, so that we would not have the optimum setting for taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to as many as possible. But more than this, what I would like you to see in this passage is that the prayer that is being commanded to the church is a prayer that is wrestling with and seeking those outcomes in life that will lead to more and more individuals coming to salvation through Jesus Christ. Whatever we pray for, whatever it is in the church, the underlying current of desire in our prayer ought to be the salvation of people who don't know Jesus Christ. It ought to be the thing that typifies, that somehow identifies the nature of our prayers. That we're praying for the other, for the person that's outside the faith, the person that needs to know the power of God and the life of God and the salvation of God and needs to experience his spiritual healing and needs to experience his complete and full forgiveness and needs to be, have that, that gap that's between him and God where now he lives in a dead state, a spiritually dead state, and he's made alive and he has a relationship with him and a relationship that's unending and will last forever and ever. And we are to pray above all things for those things. And all of our prayers in the church are to align in such a way that they're supported by and undergirded by this overriding desire. So when we pray for changes in circumstances, when we pray for someone's health, when we pray for protection, when someone's traveling, there's supposed to be something underlying the passions and the interest of our prayer in the church. There's supposed to be a, in a sense, a strategic locating of the purpose of those prayers. And the locating of the purpose is the salvation of lost men and women. You've been listening to The Bread of Life, a ministry of church partnership evangelism and the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. To learn more about our ministries, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may the Lord bless you.